Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, Executive Editor of Recode. And I'm Lauren Good, Senior Technology Editor at The Verge. And you're listening to Too Embarrassed to Ask, where we answer all of your embarrassing questions about tech. But really, there are no embarrassing questions, and we want to help you answer them. It could be about phones or self-driving cars or cloud storage or why it is Kara still using a five-year-old Android phone and sending tweets late at night. That's the president, not me. Oh, whoops, I got you too confused. Yeah, exactly. So send us your questions. We do read them all. Find us on Twitter or tweet them to at Recode or to myself or to Lauren with the hashtag too embarrassed. We also have an email address. It's too embarrassed at recode.net. And a friendly reminder that embarrassed has two R's and two S's. And while you're at it, have a listen to our previous episodes too, which you can find on iTunes at iTunes.com slash too embarrassed to ask. So Kara, you're back from Washington, D.C., Yes, it was great. I had a great time there. And I was also in North Carolina for a brief second. Oh, okay. What were you doing there? Things. I was meeting with a lot of young entrepreneurs, uh, this whole diversity, entrepreneur diversity thing. It was really cool, really amazing companies and lots of uh, women, people of color and sort of belying the idea that all, only white men can create things in this world. Were they tech companies that you were meeting with? Yeah, they were tech companies down there. They were all around Duke. You know, the, that's the research triangle down there. Oh, yeah. Um, so I thought it was pretty cool. They were great. And they've invited me many times. And I, I agreed to come because I think I would like to support that kind of stuff. Many people have invited you many times to say many, many times. And my time with Melania was nice. It was so nice that Don, the Donald was down at Mar-a-Lago. So we enjoyed ourselves. Oh, so you guys had a nice little ladies lunch. Yeah, everybody. It was the whole everybody. It was the whole Melania family. I don't know if you know they're hiding there in the in, in parts of the White House. They're wandering all over. Good. I'm glad that you enjoyed your time. We missed you. Yes. And, yes. Um, and we're actually not in person today. So if Kara sounds a little no. bit different, it's because she's at a remote studio in San Francisco. But hopefully I get to see you in person again soon. And it's unfortunate that you're not here because no. we have a really great guest in studio. Today on Too Embarrassed to Ask, we're talking all about drones. We actually did another episode on drones not too long ago with Recode's April Glazer, where we talked about some of the more convoluted rules around uh I guess where you can fly drones uh, and right. you can fly, you can find that episode at all the usual places wherever you found this episode. But today we're looking at a completely different side of drones and that's how they're being used for good for humanitarian purposes. Yeah. So Amazon delivering a toothbrush to my door with a drone is not a humanitarian act, although some people might think it was. I'd have to say no. I mean, I would, okay. you know, it's good to have good breath. And you're yeah. doing good for the people around you with good hygiene. Uh, with, I believe in good hygiene. Yes. Yeah, we good hygiene. Yeah. But no, a drone delivering a toothbrush to you and you've forgotten your toothbrush isn't quite a humanitarian act. Right, uh, what explain well, for the people who we have here? <laughs> We're delighted to have Keller Renaud with us in studio. He is the CEO of Zipline, and he actually spoke last year at Recode's Evening with Code Mobile event. Keller, mm-hmm. welcome to Too Embarrassed to Ask. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, we're very excited to have you because you're like a do-gooder. You're a do-good drone doer. <laughs> I don't quite know how to say it, but why don't you tell us about Zipline a little bit? I don't think people know exactly what it is. We did have you on stage at one of our events and you talked about it, but why don't you get people up to speed on on um, how you got to this and what it is actually? Yeah, Zipline is building the world's first drone delivery service that's operating at national scale. And our mission is to deliver medicine to the hardest to reach places in the world. Well, that's uh, easy. Okay, that's not so easy. So how did you get there? You know, we're a team uh, primarily of aerospace engineers and roboticists, and then also um, people from global public health. And we were not only really fascinated by logistics, but we were most fascinated by places where logistics is really breaking down today um, and where there are what are basically unsolved problems at national or even global scale. I mean, a good example of that is that 5.2 million 
kids under the age of five die every year due to lack of access to basic medical products. Mm -hmm. And there are many causes of that, but a big challenge is that the roads suck and logistics is really hard in a lot of the countries Mm -hmm. um, where this is happening. And so in the same way that you, you know, 10 years ago, people would have said, cell phones were never going to be useful in Africa. You can't imagine that infrastructure working. Actually, cell phones have allowed a lot of these countries to totally leapfrog the absence of landlines um, and and build infrastructure that has made people's lives a lot better. We're hoping to do the same for transportation and logistics in these countries using drones to leapfrog the absence of roads. How did you come into this business? You had a whole other career and I believe you were a rock climber at one point. (laughs) So how did, you know, what was the moment at which you said, Drones for good. This is what I want to do. Um, yeah, we, you know, yes, it's true. <laughs> I, I, uh, I was uh, at one point just living out of my car, rock climbing full time. And uh, I, you know, about five years ago, started building robots. I was just really fascinated by robotics. In, in college, I got to build computers made of RNA and DNA that operate within human cells. Uh, but I also got to build a, a rock climbing wall. And it was kind of like that combination of building something really physical that was cool that you could see people use and you could see it making someone's life better, but also getting a chance to see the power of new technology and and especially things that people consider science fiction today that are actually possible. That's what really attracted me to robotics. And the more I learned about robotics, the more I really understood that I think that where it's going to be transformative in the next five to 10 years is logistics and transportation. Mm -hmm. Uh, And because it's easier one and that it just gets around all kinds of things, right? In a lot of these countries where they just don't have a lot of rules around this stuff, correct? Well, certainly, you know, we wanted to go to places where the need is really high. Uh, But actually, contrary to popular belief, you'd be surprised the regulatory environment in Rwanda, the regulator in Rwanda is just Mm -hmm. as, is essentially just as organized as the regulator in the U.S. The difference is actually that because Rwanda is a smaller country, uh, Rwanda, by the way, is where we're currently operating and, and, and delivering blood with autonomous mm-hmm. aircraft. But uh, Ru- because the Rwandan regulator is much smaller and it's a smaller country, they can make decisions a lot faster. So what's actually happened mm-hmm. is that the Rwandan uh, regulator has implemented modern regulatory practices faster than we've been able to do that in the U.S. So your company is based in San Francisco, mm-hmm. but one of your biggest test beds right now is Rwanda. Are you making both the drone hardware and software to do this? Zipline designs, manufactures, and then also operates these vehicles totally from scratch. So we designed the flight computer, and we actually designed it in a way that we can – we we take a lot of lessons from how flight computers are designed for – a 747, for example, but then we design it using cell phone components so we can actually build something for like one one thousandth of the cost. Mm -hmm. Uh, We write all the flight controls that actually allows the plane to fly autonomously to a destination back. We design the airplane itself, the airframe, and then we build them and we operate them. So our business model is a lot more like UPS. We're not actually selling vehicles. We actually just get paid for every delivery that we do. And the reason we do all that from scratch is that when you kind of look at drones today, there's a really big gap. You can buy cheap consumer drones that are great for taking pictures but don't last very long and could crash any moment. Or you could spend $20 million on a Predator drone, which mm-hmm. the military can do and, and no one else can. And the reality is there's really nothing in the middle. And and it's actually the middle that you need to serve a commercial use case that would allow, for example, a country to deliver medical products in this way um, such that people can rely on it with their lives. One of the things I read about Zipline is that 
your company makes nonstop deliveries. The drones don't actually land to deliver the goods. In this case, it would right. be blood, for example. They just drop stuff off and keep flying. What are Why some of the talk challenges? About, yeah, yeah, talk yeah. about what you do. Like, talk about the actual act of it, and then yeah. talk about the challenges. Yeah, totally. We should we should like cover the basics. So um, the way Zipline works is that basically we work with a Ministry of Health or a healthcare provider in a country. We either locate near their distribution center or they basically pass goods to us to, to what you can think of as a really small warehouse. Uh, and from that distribution center, we can basically do instant deliveries of those medical products in a matter of minutes to any location uh, in a way that is cost comparable with cars and motorcycles today, uh, it's 20 times as fast and doesn't rely on roads. And the way we do that is we use a electric airplane that weighs about 25 pounds. Uh, and that vehicle, we, we basically launch it off of what's essentially a catapult. Uh, and once the vehicle leaves, it's completely autonomous. So it will fly in a straight line to the GPS coordinates of the of the delivery site that it knows it needs to deliver that product to. When it arrives at the delivery site, it'll, it'll come closer to the ground uh, and then we actually drop the package from the plane, um, and we actually use something we call an air brake, which is essentially just kind of a, a really simple paper parachute. Uh, it might sound kind of goofy, but it actually is a really elegant solution. Um, we can deliver with high accuracy basically onto the, the doorstep of a hospital or lab or health center, and then they instantly have the product they need to save a patient's life inside. Uh, and then the vehicle just turns itself around and comes back. And, and the neat thing about delivering in this way is there is no chance of having a plane come close to a human where you know a dog might come out of nowhere and mm -hmm. chew on a wing or you might hurt a child who was in the landing zone didn't know it any of those kind of complicating factors just don't happen because the planes only take off and land in one controlled place in the country where where we can actually train people on how to be around the planes and they're being monitored by air traffic control by the local government as well so they're not Yep. crashing into anything else in the sky. Every every flight that we um, that we fly, it, we're communicating that information directly to air traffic control. Um, so they know where our planes are. They know where other planes are. And also, because we fly really low to the ground, we're generally not around other planes to begin with. All right. How do you make money at this? I mean, because you're, you have VC funding. How much have you raised? Um, you know, to build Zipline, we've raised something like um, $35 million dollars. Okay, from VCs, Silicon mm -hmm. Valley VCs, correct, mm -hmm. largely. Yep. And what? How do you make that money back? Are they just feeling like doing good across the world, or <laughs> you get paid? You get paid by the health departments, correct? Yeah. Well, one of the coolest things, you know, when people see what we're doing, people are always like, "Gosh, it's you know, it's so you're so awesome for doing this humanitarian thing and for doing this philanthropy." And and what I'm always kind of stressing is like, "Look, this is not philanthropy." And actually, I think it's kind of a bummer that we view doing something good for people in the world in places where they really need it as being totally divorced from like a sustainable business model. So our mission is really to show that you can do both. Um, we get paid uh, per delivery that we do in a, in a way that allows us to be unit economic uh, profitable from day one. Because the reality is, you know, delivering something like a burrito, there's not a very high willingness to pay. Whereas if you can deliver something that can have a huge impact on someone's health or life, the willingness to pay for everyone involved, for government, for global public health providers, um, and even for private companies is much higher. And so we think that you know, the advantages of starting in this market by focusing on medicine, I mean, the advantages are, A, that you can have a really positive impact on the world, B, uh, that there is, in fact, a higher willingness to pay for these kinds of deliveries, and C, it's also easier to get started from a regulatory perspective because people understand the need more clearly. What do you think is an untapped need that you could potentially address with zipline drones? I mean, you're delivering blood and medicine right now, right? Are you delivering medical supplies 
as well. Oh my gosh, you know, don't don't get me started because I I I could talk forever about that. But uh, right now we're just delivering blood, just blood. And okay. you might think, well, gosh, that's really specific. But Rwanda actually delivers about thirty five thousand units of blood a year. Fifty percent of that is going toward moms with postpartum hemorrhaging. And Where's then- the blood coming from? Okay, good question. So they do blood drives across the country, but once you take blood from someone, you then have to test it to make sure it doesn't, for example, the person doesn't have HIV, and then you also need to type it. So is it a B, you know, a B, a positive? Uh, so they do all the testing and typing centrally in um, the capital city in Kigali. So basically, all the blood gets drawn from donors. It all goes to Kigali. It gets tested and typed. It's actually very expensive to test and type a single unit of blood, even in Rwanda. And then they have to figure out, okay, now how do we get all the blood back out to the uh, 10 million people who need access to it and who live in hard-to-reach places? And, and that's really the problem that we're helping solve. And you were going to say something. I didn't mean to interrupt you earlier. Yeah, no, it's You okay. mentioned a, a postpartum mothers, yeah. right? So, so of, you have 35,000 units of blood being delivered. 50% is going toward moms with postpartum hemorrhaging right after giving birth. And 30% is going toward kids under the age of five who have severe anemia due to malaria. So this product is, there's a lot of it being distributed, and it's really precious. Like when people need it, their lives depend on it. But the challenge with blood is that uh, you've got many, you have plasma, platelets, and red blood cells. Each one has different storage requirements and thermal requirements. It's just really kind of a logistical nightmare uh, to figure out how to get th- these products to where they need to go. Uh, but when, so that's what we're doing today, just delivering blood. And, and our agreement with the Rwandan government right now is to serve 21 hospitals, which are the majority of hospitals in the country. Uh, but in terms of next steps, you know, we're, we're already working with the government to begin delivering a host of other medical products, starting with vaccines and other urgently needed products where people, when you need it, you really need it fast. Um, and then something you and I actually, I think, spoke about a couple months ago, more and more we're seeing interest from agricultural use cases, specifically animal vaccines and bull sperm. And believe me, when we started Zipline, we were not thinking we would be delivering sperm in our planes. But it turns out that this is a really big market and you can have a big impact on the economic productivity of large percentages of, of the population in, in these kinds of countries uh, if you can improve the genetic quality of their cattle by delivering sperm in an efficient way. So pretty weird, but kind of another cool example where you can have a, a big impact with no more infrastructure than what we already have set up. And one of the things is drones have been used for bad things. I mean, obviously, they're now being used for commercial uses and all kinds of things. But in some of these countries, you know, spying and government use and military use, you know, has yeah. been used. And, and how do you get over that idea of what kind of drone is this that's coming at us? I mean, because you do have nervousness, I think, everywhere about these things flying around. It's certainly a challenge. Luckily, actually, we found that the most cynical place about drones is the U.S., um, when you actually go to some of the you know other countries that we're currently working in or will be working in, the attitude toward these kinds of technology it's actually much more open-minded. And if you ask people, you know, how could this help, the answer is always like, oh, it could it could deliver medical products fast. One of the coolest things, you know, we were really worried about community acceptance because we don't want to be perceived as having anything to do with, for example, the U.S. military, and that's important because when we're going in and operating in countries, one of the questions we often get from the government is. Is this going to be spying on us? Is this somehow related right, to the Are you working for the Defense Department? Yeah, are you working for the Defense like Department? Mm-hmm. And so, first of all, one of the easy ways we can answer that question is that there aren't cameras on the plane. We're just focused on delivering medical products. Uh, but secondly, actually, one of the most interesting things is w- since, now that we've launched and are, are basically operating at national scale day in and day out, one of the things that's blown us away, we were really worried about community acceptance. And actually, when you go and visit the distribution center in Rwanda, we have a fence around our distribution center just to make keep things clear because planes are taking off and landing. And there are like 
<laughs> There's a huge group of Rwandans day in and day out who line up on that fence and cheer every launch and every landing. So it's actually hard to even appreciate without being there in person just how excited and proud just even the people who live around that distribution center are of what it's doing. And when you ask them what they think about it, they just say, oh, it's a sky ambulance. So it's totally obvious to them what this is and why it's needed. Which is good because I'm pretty sure if Kara saw one in her backyard, she would shoot it <laughs> I'd down. Shoot it down yeah. <laughs> she says this all the time. The you, you and most other Americans. Kara, that could be delivering life-saving blood to you and you would shoot yeah, it down. Fine. It would be fun. Annie Oakley um, so, so what? last question and then we'll get to listeners' questions. What geographical areas are you targeting next? And what, what are the hardest ones? The U.S. or you could do it almost anywhere? Yeah, we since we've actually launched in Rwanda, you know, I think it takes a special country to actually show what's possible for the first time. And I think this role used to really be played by the U.S. when you look at cars or airplanes uh, or even space. I mean, the U.S. was really leading the way. Obviously, doing new things requires a little bit of appetite for risk uh, and appetite for uh, just a willingness to fail. And interestingly, Rwanda is kind of leading the world on that front right now. And I think it's like extraordinary that they're doing that. Now that Rwanda has shown that this is possible and can actually save money and save lives, a whole bunch of other countries have basically reached out to us and are asking to set up similar kinds of infrastructure. And so those countries include other countries in East Africa that border Rwanda. They include countries in Southeast Asia, particularly archipelagos that just have <laughs> impossible logistics challenges in terms of reaching people who are um, especially who the name archipelago. <laughs> I don't even know what that is. Well, what There's about lots the U.S. Of though? I mean, are you, do you hope to eventually operate in the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, we're you know. It's a bit, it's bittersweet. Like it, it makes us incredibly proud to be serving a really innovative government like Rwanda. Um, we're also a U.S. company and we would be really, I mean, we're, we are incredibly excited to bring this technology to the U.S. In rural places in the U.S., we have a lot of the same challenges that you see in places like Rwanda. Uh, for example, from 2000 to 2013, life expectancy on average improved in the U.S., but in rural parts of the U.S., um, in, in many geographic regions, life expectancy actually decreased by like 0.7 years in 13 years. So it's really beyond doubt that we are failing certain geographic areas, certain kinds of people in the U.S. I think the current political climate shows just how divisive those kinds of failures can be. And uh, yeah, we were really excited to to bring this to us. In fact, we were working with the previous administration and are beginning to work with the new administration uh, to set up systems in a couple different places in the U.S. to just show what's possible in, in terms of delivering medical product to rural areas. What areas are you um, are you looking at for that in the U.S.? You know, uh, we recently made an announcement with the White House about serving um, islands in the Pacific Northwest with blood, about helping the Navajo Reservation deliver to places typically have a hard time getting access, and then also making deliveries to Smith Island in Washington, D.C., which is an island with about a 1,000 people living on it that has seriously adverse health outcomes as a result of it needing you, you having to take like a two-hour ferry to get to medical care. All right. In a minute, we're going to take some questions from our readers and listeners. But first, Lauren Good is going to read a word from our sponsor. And I'm supposed to say ka-ching. <laughs> <laughs> Today's show is brought to you by HostGator. If you're ready to take your website to the next level, whether you're a first-time blogger or an experienced web pro, HostGator has all the tools you need to create a great-looking website or even an online store. And if you ever need a boost in hosting power, HostGator offers cloud, VPS, and dedicated server hosting that can easily handle maximum visitor traffic and maximum drone traffic, I might add. No, it doesn't really do that. But still, you should see what HostGator can do for your website. Right now, if you're a Recode listener, you get 60% off. So just go to HostGator.com slash Recode. That's HostGator.com slash Recode to get your 60% off. 
Lauren, that was a very kachingy reading. I like that. It was very enthusiastic. <laughs> and it was good. You know. Kaching, kaching. That's a double chicken. Kaching from Kara. <laughs> See? Anyway, okay. If you've been listening to the show, you know how it works. Every week we take tech questions from our readers and listeners and we try to answer everything we can. This week we're answering your questions about how drones can be used to do good in the world. Now, you're both going to answer these, but I think that Mr. Zipline probably has most of the answers for us. Uh, Lauren, why don't you ask the first question? Oh, I'm not even going to try to answer these. Right, okay. I All mean, right. I do have this immense background in life-saving drones, but otherwise... <laughs> Okay, so our first question is from John Reynolds. He's at Technogust on Twitter. What's the best use of drones you've seen from other companies that you might adopt and improve? I'm definitely really excited about what the next 10 years holds. And without, you know, I mean, we as a company are obviously just focused on delivering medical products. That's a huge problem. And that's all we're going to be doing for the next five years. But uh, personally, I'm certainly incredibly excited about some of the efforts that are currently going on to carry people. I think mm. that uh, vertical lift off and takeoff. That definitely, thing. definitely. Yeah. I think people today don't appreciate just how possible that is and how mm-hmm. awesome it will be. Relying less on roads or getting rid of them altogether is going to make the I think the spaces we live in way more awesome. We will spend way less time in cars, and today it's possible to design a electric vertical takeoff and landing motorcycle, basically, that, that, you know, one person could travel in that would weigh, I don't know, like 700 pounds. And so that's something I'm just personally Is really looking forward to. Is it a motorcycle to. then? <laughs> I, mean, if it, I only is say it motorcycle. I, no, no. So I only say motorcycle because it'd be a single passenger vehicle. So I think oh it's God, kind of a really good way of thinking this. about it. But I think it's just, it's incredibly exciting. And I guess, personally, on that note, you know, one of the things that we're so motivated to do is you know, the U.S. has really seen a resurgence in terms of IT, for example, technology, internet, and 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 mobile. But the U.S. used to really lead the way in like aerospace innovation. And the example that I that I think I that I'm obsessed with is that the DC three in 19 I think we built it in like 1935, first modern passenger airliner. It took a year to design and build the first one, and it cost 4.1 million dollars, which in today's dollars is is like 73 million dollars. The 787, the Dreamliner that Boeing just mm-hmm. built, took 15 years to develop, and it cost $34 billion. Hmm. That's 500 times more than the DC-3. <laughs> and you might ask, like, why are airplanes getting 500 times more expensive to build? And you know, I, I talked to someone at Boeing, and they were like, well, it's a much more complicated plane. And I was like, yeah, my iPhone 7 is a lot more complicated than my iPhone 1. It still costs the same. Right. Like the right. idea and of technology. carbon fiber. And I saw that thing in a Boeing tour last summer, and it was yeah. pretty, pretty I mean, it's a cool crazy. plane, it's but it shouldn't, cool. it shouldn't cost 500 times as much. Yes. And the reality yeah. is, the reason it costs a lot more is that you just have air, you have monopolies in aerospace. And these monopolies mm-hmm. are the result of a really challenging regulatory environment where it's very difficult to build um, new planes. And this didn't always well, used to be the case. And my, my hope is that at least some of the work we're doing can help us move back in that direction of being able to have startups building things that fly in the U.S. All right. So that's a thing into the next question from Sandy Ressler. What are the prospects for the FAA loosening up the regs that to make drones more useful non-line of sight? So let's talk about those regulations. Yeah, well, I, I certainly don't want to. I don't want to bore anybody. Um, that you know, the the FAA just came out with new regulations that now does allow for commercial operation of drones within a certain set of parameters. Those parameters are within you know visual line of sight. You have to have a trained pilot. It can only fly in the day. 
a couple other things. Um, they also have a way of applying for exemptions to those parameters. And in fact, the FAA has already granted and set a precedent for issuing exemptions. So for example, uh, Burlington Northern Santa Fe got an exemption to fly beyond line of sight to actually survey railroads. CNN just got an exemption to actually fly over populated areas um, so that they can film, I think, protests. So there's already been a precedent set for getting all the exemptions you'd need to do this in the U.S. The tricky thing uh, is really just getting the FAA to the point where they're comfortable enough with the technology to issue all the exemptions necessary for one use case to actually show that drone delivery can happen in the U.S. in a commercially viable way. And obviously, I mean, one of the you know, one of the reasons that we've been very careful in recording our safety record in Rwanda is that you know, we're going to need to use that safety record to convince the FAA to move a little bit more quickly and not allow the U.S. to fall behind in this kind of, in this kind of technology more than we need to. Our next question is from Edie Jones at EDJ on Twitter. Could drones be one potential answer to the man-made famine conditions in South Sudan? That's an awesome. That's a really good question. Awesome question. Um, hmm? We get several emails a week from governments or from U.S. government agencies who are actually solving just these kinds of problems. I think it's tough for people who aren't involved in these kinds of situations situations to understand, but in a lot of instances, for example, Ebola is another good example. In a lot of these places that the U.S. goes in and tries to provide help or the governments are trying to provide help, you're asking people to put their lives on the line. Every delivery that you do, a vaccine in the case of Ebola, if you're trying to deliver food in South Sudan to a village that really needs it, that person is in some instances, almost knowingly sacrificing their life um, to do those deliveries. And you know that's incredibly noble, but my hope is that technology can make that easier in the future. And this is an, I mean, the, the great thing about using robots in really, really dangerous situations is that if the worst happens and something gets shot down, it's just it's like, a robot. It's just a robot. Nobody cares. I mean, have you thought seriously about either pivoting or adding that on to your current strategy and saying, okay, now we're going to start doing food? Yeah, we, we certainly have. We, I mean, we received a very serious um, request from the U.S. government a couple months ago that really made us seriously consider whether, whether we could do it. We, we ended up concluding that we needed to stay focused on serving our first customers and making sure to really do right by them and set up basically sustainable infrastructure you know, for, for many years. But definitely in the next few years, I think we'll be ready as a company to start also serving those more like emergency uh, use cases where no doubt this technology could have a really big impact and save lives. All right, here's the critical question that's coming from Stephanie M. Lee. What's your plan to fight back against eagles? <laughs> yeah. Stephanie it, is at BuzzFeed, I should know. Yeah. People, yeah. people, people always ask about birds. There was a birds. recent eagle attack. There's a, there a nice picture. <laughs> I, I, gotta, I never want to say that something is like more a PR stunt than not, but that's... Uh, I, I mean, that we, eagle we was looking for PR. You think <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the people who bought Those the eagle were looking for PR. They're just like they're like the president. That says they something want a lot about. I was attention. just going to say that says something about America right now. Was it a bald eagle looking for? I don't PR? think it was America though. I think I don't remember. I think it was some other country. In any but, case, there are eagle issues. There, <laughs> there actually aren't. So, so people always okay. ask, well, what about bird strikes? And and the reality is, although we don't have a sense and avoid system on our plane that can 
uh, reliably detect birds. Birds have a pretty good sense and avoid uh, system for like a loud electric aircraft coming in their direction. So, so far, birds do a pretty good job of staying out of our way. Um, the plane is designed to have redundancy in every aspect. So at some point, if it actually, if we actually were to hit a pigeon or something, the plane would still be able to fly itself home. But you know, we'll solve that problem when it happens. And, and so far, I, I, I think it's the least of our worries. I mean, a bird strike against a robotic plane is a lot better than a bird strike against a yeah. commercial plane filled with I think with they made a movie about that. I think there was a movie. I saw it. It was not <laughs> worth it, no. Everything turned out okay in that movie. Yeah, we all know how it ends, which is good. I actually covered that story when it happened, like when the plane wow. went to the Hudson River. But that's, well, that's a whole other podcast. The next question is from Alex Hardy at Can't Hardly Wait. Alex has written to us many times before. Alex, thanks for your questions. Are human carrying drones a viable car replacement or a pipe dream? So we talked about this earlier. I wish we had <laughs> I'd seen his question earlier. But Alex, yes, it sounds like uh, vertical motorcycles are on the way. Uh, anything yeah. else you'd want to add to that? Gosh, I, not really. I think... Um, I guess the reality is that people currently, even just for what we're doing right now in Rwanda day in and day out, most people in the U.S., A, don't think it's like physically possible and believe it's science fiction. And so the ironic thing is that I think a lot of, I mean, things that we often think are science fiction are often not only impossible, but are actually happening in the world, like run right under our noses. And I'm, uh, I'm hopeful that, you know, that use case that Alex is talking about will be one of those things in the next few years. All right. It's a thing that a lot of Silicon Valley guys are obsessed with. I know the Uber people are. There's all <laughs> kinds of people who are interested in this. Um, I'm not going to pronounce this guy. Andre Kozak, I think it is, at Alvin TC. Uh, question. Aren't you afraid that somebody hacks, steals the drones with the supplies? Someone steals your blood delivery services. Are you f- scared of that? That's a very good question, actually. Yeah, we, you know, certainly in working with governments and because we're providing a service that people rely on with their lives, we have to meet a really high bar in terms of the, um, the, the security, both of the vehicle and then also the products that we're delivering. Luckily, the products we're delivering right now are at a pretty low, it's just low likelihood of being stolen because AB positive blood isn't really only useful for the patient who it's showing up for. It's not very valuable on the black market. I. Uh, in the future, we might be delivering products like morphine that are actually controlled substances that you could imagine being stolen. And in, in those kinds of instances, we actually have an ability to do what's essentially a digital signature where the person who's ordering the product will get a text message about one minute uh, beforehand saying the zip is you know approaching the delivery site, please walk outside. Uh, when they walk outside, we can essentially have them sign on their phone to say that they're ready at the delivery site to receive delivery. Um, so um, th- that's one way of basically ensuring security of the package. In terms of security of the vehicles, I mean, we build our own end-to-end encryption from scratch. And I think one of the challenges is a lot of companies get started and they build a whole system and then they're like, uh-oh, we need to make it secure. And then they try to like layer on security at the last minute. We've really built um, end-to-end encryption into all of the infrastructure that actually flies the vehicle, particularly how we communicate with the vehicle. Um, so when you think about like if terrorists wanted to use a vehicle to um, do something horrible we're a lot more secure than, for example, like a DJI quadcopter that you could go buy for a thousand bucks. So although I think it is possibly going to be a security threat in the future, it's more likely that terrorists would use an unsecured consumer product rather than try to hack an enterprise-grade product like ours. Are all drones inherently hackable in some way, though? Well, I guess you could say any system is inherently hackable to some degree or another. I, I don't think drones are any more hackable than your cell phone. I think in the future, most drones are going to communicate through the cell networks. In fact, that's what our vehicles do. We actually have SIM cards in all of our planes. In Rwanda, we buy a family plan for the vehicles because that's how we get the best rates. 
Mm-hmm. Um, we always we always actually joke when it comes to this family plan because I'm serious. Like we 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 literally built up. Fa- we bought a family plan. We have all the SIM cards. We put them all all the vehicles. And we always joke because like they have no idea what we're doing with those SIM cards. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. if the if the mobile carrier ever looked at our usage, <laughs> they'd probably ask some some questions because mm-hmm. it's a, it's pretty sure. weird family usage. It's like a family that yeah. drives back and forth in straight lines at 100 <laughs> miles an hour like mm-hmm. all day long. Yeah. <laughs> great, it's great. Okay, the last question is from Sham Sandu on Twitter. What have you learned from the Rwanda pilot that you did not already know? I actually know Sham. I think he's been to our uh, secret headquarters, but... There are secret headquarters? <laughs> well, we those? actually work from we, we work from a farm uh, where we do all of the engineering development and manufacturing and flight operations. It's kind of one of the things that allows us to move really fast by having everything in one place. Instead of having a fancy office in the city, we wanted to basically be able to have everybody on the team actually using the product on a day-to-day basis. This helps us build a really good product. But in, in terms farm of farm is a secret. Well, yeah, we don't yeah. <laughs> okay, so you told us now on the podcast, just us. It would no longer be a secret. You guys should come visit in person. Okay, we'd that love to have great. you. <laughs> but in terms of things we've learned, I think that in in a lot of ways, building the technology is the easy part, and the hard part is designing a system that can integrate with a national healthcare system, and working closely with doctors and nurses to make sure they understand how they can actually use this uh, to you know, allow them to provide a higher level of care to patients and, and ultimately save lives. And then it's also making sure that the community around those hospitals and health centers know what the heck is going on. Because a lot of the people that we fly over have certainly never ridden in planes. They may have never even seen a plane other than one flying over at like 35,000 feet. So we really have tried hard to make sure that we're doing a good job of communicating what this is, why it's important. Um, and I, th- I think so far, so good. Uh, but it is really hard, and it, it takes time. Uh, you know, we, we've we've tried to be conservative in terms of how we roll out because the cost of getting something wrong um, and letting our customer or our patients down is really high. So it's really important that we get it right, and so we try to go slow and be conservative and pay just as much attention to the customer integration piece as we do to the technology piece. Is this your first Import. startup? You know, for, yeah, for all practical purposes. I mean, you know, in college, I ran that climbing wall as a little, I guess, like nonprofit. And I've certainly been kind of building all kinds of different projects my whole life. But it feels like, you know, Zipline now is my life to a large degree. And uh, yeah, it's certainly, I, I'd say I've learned everything I've learned about startups at Zipline. Kara could well, probably tell you a thing or two about startups. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm not doing anything good. Like, this is good. And I really appreciate what you're doing at Zipline. It's a terrific company. Kara um, could probably and, also give you some advice on VCs if you ever need that. <laughs> Don't avoid them at all costs. <laughs> blood suckers, so to speak. But you're delivering blood with their money, so I'm good with that. Anyway, this has been another great episode of Too Embarrassed to Ask. Keller, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, thank you. It's been great to have you on. And if you all enjoyed the episode as much as we did, be sure to subscribe to the show. You can leave us a review at iTunes.com slash Too Embarrassed to Ask. Uh, but seriously, subscribe. If you do, you'll be the first to listen to new episodes every Friday or catch up on previous episodes where we answer all of the tech questions that our listeners have been too embarrassed to ask. And if you're not on iTunes, you can also find us on Google Play Music, TuneIn, Stitcher, and SoundCloud or you can just go to the website go to recode.net slash podcasts and you can find all of our podcasts there and while you're there you should check out our other podcasts like Recode Decode Recode Replay and Recode Media with Peter Kafka don't forget about The Verge Kara do you ever listen to The Verge podcasts? don't but sure 
All right. Sure, let's, let's not tell I Walt. Do. <laughs> because yeah, Walt has, has a great podcast, uh, Walt Mossberg, with Neelai Patel. It's called Control, Walt, Delete. And we also have The Verge Cast, which is our flagship podcast, and Neelai Patel hosts that as well. All right. And don't forget to tweet your questions ahead of time to at Recode with the hashtag Too Embarrassed on the various topics we cover or email them to Too Embarrassed at Recode.net. And we'd love some suggestions as to topics we should do. Yeah, we really do read them, especially Kara. She reads them in the middle of the night. She's like responding don't, all the time. Don't. She's, no, she's, Lauren's the good girl of this group here. She's the she's the, she's the gallant to my goofus. I try. Uh, but really, thank you for listening to everybody. And thank you also to Digital Media, the company that distributes our show. And thank you to our producer, Eric Johnson. We'll be back next week to answer more of the questions you've been too embarrassed to ask so tune in then